Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest Steve Buscemi doesn't need that much of an introduction. He is one of the most memorable actors ever. He's had hundreds of parts, leading parts in stuff like Reservoir Dogs, Ghost World, Boardwalk Empire, iconic supporting parts in Fargo, The Sopranos, and of course, 30 Rock. So we'll skip the long intro and talk about his newest work. It's a TV show called Miracle Workers, a comedy created by the hilarious Simon Rich, the same person behind Man Seeking Woman and a bunch of brilliantly written works you might have seen in The New Yorker or on one of his many books or heard on this show. Each season, Miracle Workers tells a different story with the same cast. Season one was set in Heaven, which is run kind of like a soulless megacorporation with an absentee CEO. Steve played God. Literally, God. Explain cows. I don't want to do this anymore. Tell mom and dad what a cow is. It's like a big dog you can drink from. And what's a dog? A small cow you can be friends with. Tell them about giraffes. What's a giraffe? It's just a tall dog with... Louder. Speak up. Tall dog with a leg for a neck. Season two takes place in the Dark Ages. In fact, that's what it's called, Miracle Workers Dark Ages. Steve Buscemi plays a peasant named Edward, whose last name we cannot say on the radio. That's because it describes his profession. He scoops up human waste with a shovel. Shoveler is actually the second word in his last name, and I bet you can guess the first. Let's hear a clip from the show. In this bit, Ed is training his daughter in the family business. They're just about to make their rounds in the village with their shovels and cart. But before she goes off on her own to work, Ed gives her the rundown. Well, you know the shoveler's pledge. Anytime, anywhere, even if it's big. That's the pledge? Yeah. It's easy to remember because it doesn't rhyme. First job, big moment. Okay, let's just get this over with. Whoa, 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 easy there, cowboy. I gotta teach you la technique. All right, now, never turn your back on the cart and always lift from your neck. The neck is the body's power center. Why are these shovels so short? Well, this way we have to stoop over more and it's harder. Those are negatives. That's the way my dad taught me. I remember what he said just before he died of shoveling. Son, I feel weird. Steve Buscemi, welcome to Bullseye. It's really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. How did you end up uh, making this very specific television program with uh, the great Simon Rich? Well, so this is, uh, it's an anthology series. So this is actually the second season. The first season uh, was just called Miracle Workers, and it, uh, it took place in heaven, as if heaven was a corporation. And I played God, and uh, but he's a very um, disinterested God, not terribly bright, um, and um, very secluded, kind of depressed, confused about how Earth just all went wrong, <laughs> and he's ready to give it up, and it's up to his uh, angels to uh, 
sort of convince him that it's a worthwhile endeavor to keep Earth going. He's sort of like a sweatpants god. He is, yeah. He's sort of just uh, just kind of gave up. <laughs> He's ready to pivot to a restaurant. <laughs> he is, yes, <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, he wants yeah, to dude, bail on this. He and... wants to destroy the Earth and open up this crazy restaurant somewhere in space. <laughs> um, and um, the second season takes place in the Dark Ages, hence the title Miracle Workers, Dark Ages. So it's the same cast. Uh, and that was uh, Geraldine Vis- Viswanathan that you heard in that clip. And also Daniel Radcliffe uh, is in the series and John Bass and Karan Sony. So it's it's all the same cast and we all play different characters now. And so if the listeners couldn't tell from that clip, I am the town shoveler. As evidenced by your surname, yes. which, as was the custom at the time, <laughs> yes. reflects directly your occupation. Yes. And Geraldine plays my daughter, and uh, John Bass plays my son. And Daniel Radcliffe, um, in the first season, yeah, he played sort of like this helpless angel who's like overwhelmed. and, and um, But in this one, he plays uh, a spoiled prince who lives who lives in a castle. And so it's sort of a role reversal for us both. You bring a lot of kind of casual humanity to this role uh, that otherwise could be very broad. Like it could be a big goof around, mm-hmm. but it requires you to do these big idea things in the plainest, most human way possible. Well, if it was just, you know, jokes, I, I don't think I'd be interested. But what I loved about playing God was that, you know, that he really did have, you know, this inner life that uh, I found very sympathetic, you know, even though he could be the biggest jerk, you know, a lot of the times. And in this uh, season, I loved, uh, I don't usually get to play a dad, you know, and so in this one, I have uh, a couple of kids and he's, you know, (laughs) he is a pillar of the community. People depend on him. And uh, and he's very proud of uh, what of what he does, and um, so that was you know that was really something that I could hold on to and just always play play that. There is a scene from Miracle Workers second season that I want to play that I think reflects the esteem in which your character is held by the community. So basically, your character and his daughter are out doing their work, which involves shoveling. And the, the cart into which they shovel that which they shovel runs into the prince, played by Daniel Radcliffe. And he is not actually injured. But long story short, in order to not embarrass himself in front of his dad, the king, right. he orders your character to be executed. And so these are what he believes will be his his last words to his kids uh, before his execution. Just remember this life advice. If you work hard, be kind, everything will always go your way. Bring out the prison up. Gotta go. Dad, why did you take the blame? For the same reason I do everything. Because I'm your father, and I love you. I'm so sorry, everything I said, no, no, I- No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. The truth is, you're too smart for this job. You get your brains from your mother. Before she died, I, I promised her I'd do my best for you. I taught you everything I knew this morning. And I know you'll succeed at whatever you do. <clears throat> Gotta go. <laughs> and happily he goes. 
<laughs> just the what, what's lovely about this character is like he has the toughest job that exists in the world and also does not question any of the tough parts of it like he he uses no, he a, loves it he uses like a uh like a dustpan to do his <laughs> shoveling uh, a wooden dustpan and and is completely taken aback when his daughter suggests maybe they should use a long-handled implement he's like well stooping that's like part of the thing yeah, yeah. you got to stoop and he really finds satisfaction in the sort of bounds of his world that like it, he provides this service he does this thing and there's literally a scene where you're walking down the street and you say could life get any better he's you know he's working he's <laughs> and he's providing for his family and now his daughter is working with him it's life couldn't be better for him your dad was a civil servant he was a he he worked in the sanitation yeah, department. Yeah, you know New York. when when uh, Simon first told me uh, about my character for this season, as I'm hearing him talk, I you know I said, well, this guy reminds me a lot of my dad. You know, my my dad did 30 years uh, on the Department of Sanitation in uh, Brooklyn, and um, we were we were well provided for, and um, you know he didn't have the most impressive job, you know, that you wanted to brag about to your friends, but I never heard him complain. He just, you know, he really just and I think he did enjoy what what he did. I mean, he later became an assistant foreman and then a foreman and um he he passed away about 5 years ago and uh, at his wake I got to meet a lot of his friends that he worked with. And just to hear you know, the stories about him and the way that they talked about him and um, how he really cared about the people that he worked with and he had a he had a good time at work and um, it was a job, but he took it seriously and um, and I think he was I think he felt good that that he was that he was able to, you know, he had four kids and um, and he provided well. Did you go into the civil service, which you did as a young man? in part because of his influence it was yeah it was directly because of him i mean he made me he made me and my brothers take whatever civil service exam came up when we turned 18 and for me it was uh, the fire department so i took the test really kind of just to please him but he made sure that i trained for it and he made sure that i was able to get Older copies of the um, the written exam, which is the written exam. It's pretty easy, but there's always a couple of like trick questions, and if you don't study the older exams, you won't be ready for them, and you'll miss them on the on the test. And I scored, you know, because of that, I was able to score high on the written exam. I did okay on my physical, and my name was put on the list. And it took four years for for me to get hired. And um, by that time, I was I was moving furniture. I was trying to do stand up. I had moved into the city, and I was just exhausted and just looking for a change. And I thought, okay, I'll be a I'll be a firefighter, and um, not really understanding what the job ca- called for. Uh, but then, of course, once I took the job, I really fell in love with it, and you know, just really admired um, the people that I was working with and um, I did it for four years and um, 
and it stayed with me uh, all this time. Did you think about going to college when you finished high school? I did. I went to uh, Nassau Community College for one semester and wasn't even taking any theater classes. I was just, you know, taking some uh, uh, liberal arts classes and it just, I mean, there were a couple of interesting classes that I wished I had, you know, uh, if I could have just taken those classes, I was there was like an, a jazz appreciation class, and there was a, a literature class. But then I also had to take biology and some other things, and I just thought uh, this is like high school again. And I, I dropped out after a semester, and then figured out that yeah, I think I do want to be an actor. I had only done a little bit of acting in um, high school. Although it's something that I had always wanted to do when I was a kid, you know, and as a kid I did school plays and, but it wasn't until my senior year in high school that I started to like really do, um, really check out the theater department. Anyway, I then, uh, again, at the advice of my dad, he said, well, you should take acting classes, you know, there's, but I was living in Long Island. I had no idea that these things even existed, you know, and, um... I ended up going to the Lee Strasberg Institute on a six-month, uh, like a full-time course, like four acting classes a week and a movement class and a, uh, a speech class, and it was great. Even more with Steve Buscemi still to come. When we return from a quick break, we'll look back on the first-ever movie in which he acted, one that ended up being a pivotal moment in the history of American queer cinema. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. What's good, y'all? As you know, February is Black History Month, and all throughout that month, NPR's Code Switch is going to be running a special series about the history of Black resistance. Because as long as Black folks have been oppressed in this country, which is, you know, forever, we've also been fighting back. Listen and subscribe. Hey, I'm Jared Hill, co-host of the brand new Maximum Fun podcast, Fan Time. And I'm Travel Anderson. I'm the other more fabulous co-host. And the reason you really should be tuning in. I feel the nausea rising. To be Fan is to be a big fan of something, but also have some challenging or anti-feelings toward it. Kind of like Kanye. We're all fans of Kanye. He's a musical genius, but like, you know. He thinks slavery is a choice. Or like the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Like, I love the drama, but do I want to see black women fighting each other on screen? Ew, to the nah, to the nah, nah, nah. We're tackling all of those complex and complicated conversations about the people, places, and things that we love. Even though they may not love us back. Fanti, Maximum Fun, podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with the actor Steve Buscemi. He has, of course, performed in literally hundreds of films and TV shows. These days, you can see him on TBS. He stars alongside Daniel Radcliffe in the brilliant comedy series Miracle Workers, Dark Ages. I read this uh, great profile that John Lahr wrote of you for The New Yorker Mm -hmm. 15 years or so ago. And he basically, he described your dad encouraging you to take acting classes in a way that I loved reading because, you know, you in my job, you hear lots of people describe what their parents' relationships were to their artistic aspirations, right? And basically, you had been hit by a bus when you were a preschooler. Yeah. And there was like a little bit of money that was in a like an educational trust fund. Right. I got, a, I got a settlement, yeah. And your dad, at least as uh, John Lard described it, 
basically said, look, you should take acting lessons. You don't, don't become an actor, but you got to do something. Well, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, this is like something you care about. <laughs> so here's the thing. When my dad was growing up, he had two best friends. One became a firefighter and one became an actor. So not that I had like a, a connection into the business, but I actually knew somebody. My my uncle Pete, you know, he was my dad's best friend, Peter Miller. He was an actor in the fifties. He was, you know, he had a little part in Rebel Without a Cause. He was in Robert Altman's first film, The Delinquents, and he had a great part in that. Did a bunch of TV when that was, you know, like really kind of com- coming into its own. And then and then he left, and he and he became an investment banker. So by the time I wanted to sort of go into acting. Uh, he wasn't in the business anymore, but I would talk talk to him. And my idea was that I had to get out to Hollywood. Like, that's where you become an actor. I had no idea, you know. And um, my dad was, uh, he was trying to keep me in New York so that when my name came up for the fire department <laughs> that I would be in New York. But he knew I liked acting. And he knew, he actually knew about um, acting classes because of his, because of, Pete. Peter Miller went to the neighborhood playhouse. I think we did check that out, but then I ended up interviewing at uh, Lee Strasberg. Uh, but my dad also told me, you know, yeah, take acting classes because it's good just for life, you know. And uh, and I told him that on the interview, and I got a very uh, a stern look, you know, from the person interviewing me, saying, "No, if you come here, you have to want to be an actor." I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I do. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's like the first thing they tell you at acting school. There's like a long series of classes uh, for the first few weeks where just basically every teacher is just giving you a lecture on why you shouldn't become an actor. Yeah. <laughs> but you made it through that. I somehow, uh, you know, I mean, I had the money to pay for a full-time <laughs> six-month course, and I loved it. You know, it really— Did you think you were good at it? It took me a while to even do anything in the classes. I used to just sit there. But in one of the classes, they did improvisation, and I found that I was kind of okay at that. And then once I started, you know, doing some scene work, I just felt like I— you know, that I really, really loved it. Uh, one of the earliest scenes I did was from A View from the Bridge with Linda Hamilton. And um, it was exciting, you know. And then, you know, in, in acting class, you could, you know, you you get to do things that maybe you wouldn't normally do in the course of your career. So, and it was also I learned about playwrights that I knew nothing about, you know. So it was a huge education for me. And it was exciting and it was fun. Did you have a particular aspiration or idea of what your career would be? No. No. I mean, I knew I liked comedy and I had, you know, some designs on becoming a stand-up because I love stand-up comedy and I would see that some stand-ups would then get get a series or or they would, you know, be a guest star on a series. This and was I, like in the in the late seventies or so yeah, when that yeah. was when that was truly yeah. it was like the era of get on Carson, get invited to the couch, well, get look, your own sitcom. Yeah, if you look at Freddie Prinz, he was seventeen years old when he did the Tonight Show, and and then he got his own series. 
Um, I was, you know, I mean, yeah, he was young, but he had like a life <laughs> experience. I was this, you know, kid from Long Island, and I was trying to do stand-up at age 18. I used to sit in the back of the improv in, in New York and just watch, you know, people like uh, Paul Reiser and Jerry Seinfeld and Gilbert Gottfried, and every once in a while I would uh, get on just late at night. But it was a great experience to, like, see them, and uh, and that's really what I wanted to do. But stand-up for me... It was hard for me to find my own voice. I didn't like the aloneness of it. And I realized, you know, once I started taking the acting classes, was that I liked being with other pe people, you know. And um, so <clears throat> a little later on, after I had moved to the East Village, I met people like Mark Boone Jr. and this wonderful comedian actor, Rockets Redglare, and uh, who was in a lot of uh, Jim Jarmusch's early films. And we all just started to write and perform our own work. So that was a huge uh, thing for me to not only be acting, but also to be writing and uh, improvising and, um, and then being in a community of people who were all just trying to do their own work. And yeah, this was like the early 80s in the East Village. And it was just an amazing time to be there because, you know, in terms of music and art, performance art, dance. And it took me a while to sort of uh, find my way. But after a while, I was I was in the thick of it. I actually, I found a clip of uh, you and Mark Boone Jr. who had a double act for wow. a long time. And... I watched it. It was it's recorded in the, the in the late '80s, which I imagine was mm -hmm. towards the end of your run. But it's such a great piece. It's like a 13 minute scene with the two of you, and it was like recorded on a, you know, maybe a prosumer VHS camcorder or yeah. something like that. <laughs> like it's not the finest video, but I I sat I sat at my computer screen, and watched on YouTube all, all the way through because I found it so compelling. Oh, wow. Um, and it was a lot less when I heard that you had been in a double act. I, I presumed something a lot jokier uh, and stand upier than what it actually is, which is uh, very theatery. It's a real scene. Yeah, we never considered ourselves stand ups. I mean, it was always um, these little theater pieces, um, mostly mostly shorts. Um, but we did do a couple of feature-length uh, plays and um yeah it was uh, i mean it was there was all it was always infused with humor but the humor came out of the characters personalities or the situation that they were in so I, i'm gonna play a little clip so your character is is a professional panhandler yes it, his character is sort of uh is apparently maybe a professional panhandler but is dressed very nicely uh relative to you you're wearing like torn jeans and a right. beanie and stuff like that and he's wearing a, a coat and tie and he comes up to you as you're asking passers-by for change and giving them a giving them a line about you, your wallet got stolen and so right. forth and asks you for money which you're not nuts about if you're gonna stick around here maybe i should give you some advice or else you're gonna die out here all right look Whenever somebody passes by, even if they don't give you nothing, all right, always say, have a nice day, God bless you, whatever. Because, I'll tell you what, even, 
Even if they don't give you nothing, all right? Because maybe they pass you by in the morning, right? They don't give you nothing, but if you're nice to them, then maybe later on on their way back, they remember you. People appreciate a little courteism. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you understand how it works? I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of know this, you know, I mean, I know how to deal with people is what I'm trying to say, you know? Hey, what are you staring at? <laughs> huh? I ain't no freak. Get out of here. Hey, get out of here. Come on, get out of here, huh? It's all right. I know that guy. Come on. He's a creep. He's all right. <laughs> hey, have a nice day. <laughs> there was a point I I've, I I read somewhere that the two of you were doing forty minutes of material every week. We yeah for a while. Do you remember the club Folk City? It was this music club, you know, in the village. Yeah, very I mean, well known club. Yeah, I mean, mostly a music club, <laughs> and um, but they had a like a comedy night each week, and then they had a theater night, and we were booked for months, like three months. And we had to come up with a new show each week. And we usually waited to the last minute. <laughs> but, um, but that's when, you, you know, you get real inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is like bananas. It's hard enough to go ask somebody that writes for Saturday Night Live. It's hard enough to come up with five minutes material a week. Yeah, much I mean, less half an hour, 40 minutes. We recycled some earlier things. But yeah, but basically we would, uh, we would com- come up with, you know, we really tried to come up with new material each, each week. By that point, did you think, oh, I'm going to be a, a theater actor or I'm going to be a film actor? Or were you just happy to be doing stuff? I was stuff? just happy to be doing anything. You know, the fact that, that I could perform was just everything to me. I mean, yeah, I had designs on wanting to do TV or... And at that time, independent film was just starting to come into its own, you know. And, yeah, I wanted to work with the people that I saw around me, like, you know, Jim Jarmusch, Susan Seidelman. You know, she she was making making films. And people like Betty, Betty Gordon and Sarah Driver, Eric Mitchell. And then I started to work with some of them. And, um, and that was very exciting. Did you feel like you were as... Uh cool and sophisticated and accomplished as they were? Oh, no, no. I felt, I really didn't know anything. You know, I moved into the East Village, I think, around 1978, and because, you know, the rent was so cheap, and it took me so long to realize that the scene was happening around me, and then I, you know, I liked it, but I had no idea how to you know, approach it or how to get noticed. And I was very shy. And um, and it was really just, I just got lucky that I had some good friends. One of them was a firefighter who lived in my building, Dennis Gordon. And he was a pretty hip guy and he just knew like the places to go and he would bring me along. And then he introduced me to another firefighter who was an actor, Dean Tulipane. He was doing some theater and uh, so I ended up, you know, doing some stuff with him and his troupe. And slowly it just kind of snowballed. But I was, you know, I was still in the fire department and kind of juggling doing that and then uh, doing these shows and then starting to do film. Your wife passed away last year and the two of you were married for like 30 years. Yes. You must have met her around that time. Yeah. We lived across the street from each other on East 10th Street. And um, she was also doing work 
She was a brilliant choreographer, dancer, performer, performance ar- artist, filmmaker, and she combined everything. And um, I, we literally met on the street. I have to say, I was a little bit of a stalker because <laughs> I lived across the street. Is it does it count as stalking if you're watching from your window? You know, <laughs> a little bit. Okay, yeah. It's not like I was standing outside her building. Yeah, but I literally would just like get up in the morning and see if she would be on the street, and I would notice what time she'd come out of her building. Then I would. I had a dog, and I would hurry up and get my dog and walk the dog at that moment, hoping to see her, and. I have to admit, I also knew roughly what time she'd be coming home from work. <laughs> and again, I'd be out there with my with my dog, Chief. And um, those were the beginnings of these little <laughs> conversations that that we would have. And she had actually seen uh, she had seen me in a play, John Jezerin, who was a brilliant playwright director. Uh, he was doing a series at the time called Chang and Avoid Moon. He would write a new show each week that we performed on Monday nights at uh, the Pyramid Club. And then he was doing some other longer plays. Um, one was called Dog's Eye View that we did at La Mama. And Joe uh, saw that, Joe Andres, my wife. And she told me what she did. And so I would check her out. I would, and, uh, you know, I mean, I fell in love with her when I first saw her. Seeing her on stage was just like, oh my God. Like and she's also this like brilliant performer, so yeah, that was a that she was, was a magical time. Did you ever dance in one of her shows? She was maybe best known as a, as a choreographer of kind of like like event dances, like performance art dances with projections and stuff like that. Yeah, I danced in a couple of her p- pieces, and uh, she was a real taskmaster. And <laughs> <laughs> but it was great. I loved. I loved the precision of her work. A lot of dancers, you know, uh, at that time, it was it was more, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know a lot about dance, but more like uh, freeform or contact improv or, you know, choreography that I probably wouldn't know, know, know how to do. But Joe's choreography was very precise and, you know, and she just taught me how to do it and I... Yeah, there were a couple of shows where I got to dance with her, and it was it was wonderful. I want to play a clip from your film debut, which was a movie called Parting Glances from 1986. And I watched some some bits of this online today. And number one, you were you were very pretty. You were a pretty dude. Huh. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, like you your your character in the your character in the film is uh is like a rock singer yeah. and uh you wear it well. Why well, thank uh, you. You're a very convincing uh <laughs> rock and roll heartthrob. And uh this was one of the first this, this film came out in the mid 80s, 86 and it was one of the first uh independent films to deal directly with the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. And I wonder before we play this this clip from it, how you ended up being in the movie. Well, when Boone and I were doing the shows at Folk City, there was another troupe that uh, they were doing shows there, uh, mainly improv, and uh, one of the actresses was named Kathy Kinney, and she took a liking to us, uh, to Boone and I, and Kathy and I became pals. And she was friends with the uh, Bill Sherwood, who wrote and directed Par- Parting Glances. 
And he had been looking, you know, to fill this role of uh, this character of Nick. And uh, she told Bill about me. And, and uh, he came to Folk City to see me perform. And then he asked me to audition for the film, which I did. And he told me that if he hadn't seen me already on stage, he would not have given me the part based on my audition. <laughs> uh, I guess I, you know, I was, I guess I was terrible <laughs> at, on, on the audition. But that's how it came about. Your character had AIDS and was dying of mm -hmm. AIDS. You must have, at the time, living where you did in that, in that time and place, you must have known people who were sick. Then. Do you know, at that time, I only knew one person who was sick. I had certainly, you know, read about it, and there was like this, you know, fear in the air about, uh, you know, how 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 bad is this going to get? And I was reading about people being sick and dying, but at that point, I I hadn't known anybody. It wasn't until a few years later that um, a lot of our friends that 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 we knew in theater and the dance world and in the performance world were getting sick and dying bill sherwood among them you know he, he only made the one the one film i just had a family friend uh pass away from complications of hiv and he had been hiv positive since about when this movie came out wow and had a, a rich and an incredible life you know far outlived his own expectations right. certainly anyone else's as well but i remember even being a kid as you know, I was born in 1981, so this was really when I was like an elementary schooler, oh, wow. that it was really heavy. And like, I remember just it would just be someone I knew at church was gone, right? You know, someone that it was, I, I think, sometimes for, for people who are uh, people who are younger or maybe didn't grow up in urban areas uh, with big gay populations mm -hmm. or, or whatever. It's it's kind of hard to describe how scary it was then. I mean, like I, as somebody who had no idea basically what sex was, because I was eight right. or nine. Right. Even for me, it was very scary because it was my neighbor and my mom's friend, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. It truly was scary, and especially in the beginning, when there was so much that was unknown about it, and it truly was. It felt like it was a death sentence. If if you had it, it meant you know you had like like a year or two at at best. And it really did. Uh, it kind of swept through the community uh, that I was in. You know, we lost some really wonderful and talented people. That um, it was it was very traumatic. You know, it was uh, it was it was really. That was, I think, the roughest part of like living during that time, you know, was losing so many amazing people. Let's play a scene from Parting Glances with my guest, Steve Buscemi. He, he plays in it a character named Nick, who is the ex of one of the leads, whose name is, whose character's name is Michael. And they're friends and, and have some feelings for each other. And Michael is caring for Nick, who, who doesn't really have anybody else to care for him. And this scene is at Michael's partner, Robert's going away party. Mm -hmm. uh, he's going overseas. And Steve 
um, Steve's character runs into a, a younger guy at the party. I met Michael. He was a freshman at NYU. I'm hanging out in the village. I am a Columbia freshman. Shut up a minute. I'm hanging out in the village, and I, I'm a couple years older than Michael, and I see this Midwest nerdy-type kid walking down the street. So I chat him up a little bit. He don't know anything. I mean, the whole scene is happening four blocks away from where he's going to school, and he don't even know it. So I show him around. You know, we go bar hopping that night. Terry had this place over on Barrow Street, so we go there as a party going on. Michael went wild, and he almost flunked out his first year. We tore this town apart, man. That's what you need. Find somebody your own age. Get your hair messed up a little bit. Even more with Steve Buscemi after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey everyone, Mujan Zulfagari here with the cast of Mission to Zix. Our fourth season premieres on February 19th, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, we decided to ask one of our characters to give you a quick recap of what's happened so far, so say hi, C-53. Hello, I'm be of service. C, could you tell us what's happening in the Zix quadrant leading up to season four? Certainly. The evil Nerd Bundle, not to be confused with the non-evil Nerd Bundle of no relation, murdered his fellow counselors and crowned himself Emperor of the Galaxy with the help of myself and the rest of the crew. The Bartarian Jade, Zeman Reflect Decks that are not the Emperor and an ancient cosmic entity known as Bino, into a chasm aboard the gigantic Planet Crusher Crusher, a machine built to crush planet crushers, which in turn were designed to crush planets, and resulting in implosion created a vast celestial object with unknown powers. We are currently in search of our former rebel commander, Sisu Gundu, who may yet reunite our fractured galaxy. Is that sufficient? Yeah, all clear to me. Mission to Zix, Season 4, debuts on February 19th on Maximum Fun. NPR Music wants to hear your songs. If you're an unsigned musician, enter the Tiny Desk Contest. Just send us a video of you playing an original song behind a desk by March 30th. Learn more at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. Hey, Bullseye listeners, it's Jesse. Uh, I just wanted to break in here for a second and let you know that MaximumFun.org has a brand new show that I think you will really like. It is called Fanti. It's about that stuff in popular culture that we love, but maybe doesn't love us back. Our problematic faves, our favorite problematics. Uh, It's hosted by Travell Anderson and Jared Hill, and both of them are brilliant and hilarious, like deeply insightful into things, but also very, very funny. They're also really good pals. So uh, the two of them have a a wonderful, warm rapport. Uh, and, And I... I can't recommend this show highly enough. We've been we've been uh, working so hard on it. I really think you're going to like it. It's called Fanti. It's a combination of anti and fan. It's spelled F-A-N-T-I, and you can find it in your favorite podcatcher. And I encourage you to do so. The first episode is about Kevin Hart and his uh, prodigious talent and his many half-assed apologies. And uh, <laughs> I think I think you'll really like it. So search for Fanti in your favorite podcast app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Steve Buscemi, is an actor and director. He's starring on the TBS series Miracle Workers Dark Ages. It's running now on TBS. I think you kind of made your film career with Reservoir Dogs, which came out a few years later. Absolutely. And uh, how did you get that part? I auditioned for it twice. Um, The first time I auditioned with for it. Uh, it was with Seymour Cassell. I was working with Seymour on uh, Alexander Rockwell's film In the Soup, and they brought us in together. And then I guess a few weeks later, I got a call back, and uh, 
like I, you know, like I said, I was not a great auditioner. So I just, you know, I wasn't sure at all if I was going to get the part. And then I was invited to do a workshop of a few scenes in the Sundance Lab. And Quentin was going to be there. But the condition was, you know, it didn't necessarily mean that I got the part. But I just wanted to go and I just wanted to work on the scenes. And if I didn't get the part, fine. And it was at Sundance that uh, Quentin told me that I that I had the part. And... Um, that was very exciting because I really felt like this is. Uh, I felt like the movie was special. I, you know, I thought it was a, a really, you know, so uniquely written and very funny, and but then also, you know, really horrifying. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, and Quentin did that. You know, he did all all of us actors a favor by putting, you know, our names up on the screen. You know, and like the opening credits. You know, like right like right below our faces. Um, so. Yeah, that, that, that really opened a lot of doors. How did being in that movie change your career? What, what happened when you were in a very hot indie movie and your name was printed underneath your face in the you know, introductory sequence? Well, I mean, it was great because casting directors knew me now and more directors knew me. But even before that happened, for me, it was just a huge... Uh, step to be working with people like Harvey Keitel, you know. Harvey, actually, he was one of the producers on the film, and he paid for Quentin and Lawrence Bender, the producer, to come to New York to see New York actors because they were going to cast it all out in L.A. So if Harvey hadn't have done that, I never would have even been considered for uh, the film. And uh, so just to be working with somebody like him... And Eddie Bunker, who I knew from the movie Stra Straight Time, that was, you know, Lawrence Tierney. And, you know, and I was just starting to get familiar with uh, Tim, Tim Roth's work. And so for me, it was just very exciting to be in a movie like that and to work with that caliber, that caliber of uh, people. And then to be, you know, with uh, Quentin, who was it was his first film and his you know, enthusiasm for, for what he was doing was sort of contagious. You know, we, we all felt excited to be doing this. So even if the film didn't, you know, make us make a splash, for me, it was already successful because I just, you know, loved doing it so much. And it really felt like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of in a bigger league now. I feel like it really set a template for your later performances in that you have a remarkable quality of sweetness on screen. And I don't know, maybe it's because, you, I mean, you have such beautiful eyes, like this is one of your calling cards on, on screen, and maybe it comes from that. Maybe it's something you're doing on purpose, I don't know. But the fact that you are so convincingly sweet while also being able to be a murderous psychopath um, <laughs> really, <laughs> like I was thinking about what's the what's the connection between uh, what's the connection between the TV show and uh, some of that past work, and it's that like you have such a convincing sweetness that like that is what like you had this series of roles where you were in some capacity murderous, <laughs> generally, but like the audience wants to stay with you. 
But it's funny. I don't see it as, I mean, I'm glad you see like a sweetness in like Mr. Pink or my character in Fargo because I don't, I don't see the sweetness in them. But I mean, like, that's the thing that but is I, special about the performances. Well, but what I do feel like is that these guys, that they're, that they're real people, that nobody, you know, becomes a criminal because they think it's, you know, cool. You know, it's, um, there's something, there's a desperation behind it and there's always a backstory that made me feel sympathetic towards like who this person might be and so i always try and you know kind of keep that in mind did you have to re-steer the ship away from psychopaths five years after uh after reservoir dogs yeah you know after a while uh (laughs) it gets (laughs) i mean i had i had played plenty before then too but just not in in films that people really knew. But, yeah, it was sort of a a thing with me. Whenever I would get a script, I would sort of, like, see what page I get beaten up on or see what page <laughs> that I'm trying to kill somebody or or when I get killed. And after a while, I was just like, I have to, I do have to steer this in another direction. You just start looking for dads. And, yeah, or comedies or something, you know. I mean, I was so, uh, it was... It was so much fun, like, you know, to, to, to work with Adam Sandler on his films, even though in his first film I did play a psychopath in <laughs> <laughs> Billy Madison. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love doing all sorts of genres and ca- characters. And, uh, yeah, I think mixing it up is, is really important. You have had so many memorable roles that I wish I had time to ask you about, but I want to focus on the creme de la creme, which is the time you were on 30 Rock. Okay. Um, (laughs) Which is like maybe my favorite TV show of all time. Yeah. And on it, you were a <laughs> you were a private detective, a somewhat yes. dopey private detective who, yes. uh, for some reason, Alec Baldwin's character kept hiring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it it ended up becoming like this truly. Well, I'm I'm gonna play I'm gonna play a a, a scene from it, okay. and we will talk about it. The episode was called "The Tuxedo Begins." And uh, Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Donaghy, has his phone stolen at knife point in a construction tunnel. And he hires your character, who is a, you know, 55-ish year old Steve Buscemi, (laughs) to recover the phone. You got mugged, huh, Mr. Donaghy? And you caught the guy who did it. Good for you. Oh, no, Len. Uh, Tracy is helping me with this. But I can see how you went there. I have a criminal skull shape. Len, Commissioner Kelly and I are friends. We have competing columns in Irish Arguments Weekly, America's Only, All Caps Magazine. But Ray hasn't returned my phone call, and I know that you were once a uh, police officer. I was part of a special task force of very young-looking cops who infiltrated high schools. How do you do, fellow kids? What? So I'm glad you called me, Mr. Donaghy. I checked with my contacts on the force and got you this free pamphlet. Len. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's amazing about that is that, you know, that was really kind of like a throwaway, you know, like uh, not seen. It was like four seconds. Yeah, at most. <laughs> and I'm amazed that, you know, that it's had 
this detraction that it's had like all these years. How do you feel about the lasting testament of your uh, brilliant artistic career almost certainly being you in a backwards baseball hat holding a skateboard over your shoulder saying, howdy do, fellow kids? I'm holding two skateboards. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I love it. I love it. And, you know, that character, I was, you know, I was, uh, I did it. Uh, it was either in like in the first or second season, and then I started directing a little bit on the show, and it was really just supposed to be like a one-off, and I rarely campaigned for parts or, for, you know, but I remember talking to Robert Carlock, one of the creators of the show and brilliant writer, and I sort of was planting in his ear like, can we bring him back? And I saw, like, the look on his face was like, yeah, Okay. Why not? <laughs> and, and then he did in a in a big way. He's like weird priority, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve Buscemi, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to be on Bullseye. I've so admired your work for so long, and it was really nice to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was it's really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Steve Buscemi. Miracle Workers Dark Ages airs Tuesday nights on TBS. It is super funny. You can also check it out on TBS.com. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where some local teens were spotted by my colleague Daniel playing on the barge that's in the lake. I'm told, says here on this paper, folks around the office are calling them the Barge Boys. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Kristen Bennett. Welcome to Kristen. Great to have her here in the office. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. He makes all those beats for the show. And uh, if you go over to Bandcamp, uh, you can find a compilation he made of music from Bullseye that you can buy on a pay-what-you-will basis, and uh, you can listen to it while you're studying or whatever. Freestyling, whatever you want. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And one last thing, there are decades of interviews in the annals of Bullseye and its predecessor, The Sound of Young America. They're all on our website, MaximumFun.org. We also have a bunch of stuff with Simon Rich, who is the creator of Miracle Workers. Uh, Not just interviews, but also him reading a number of pieces he's written for his various spectacularly hilarious books. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. <laughs>